A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment, and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Happy New Year. I should say, just before we get going, there was one point in the distant past when we were thinking about changing our name from Lockdown TV to something else because we felt that lockdowns were in the past and we should be moving on to pastures new. Well, sadly, that has not yet happened and the UK moved into its third national lockdown yesterday. So for now, we remain Lockdown TV. And our mission remains to investigate this strange time we're in, um, what the truth of it is, and what kind of world we're going to inherit after it all um, has moved on. So here to help us do that, I'm delighted to say, is Professor Jonathan Haidt, joining us from New York. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Freddie. So you are a uh, very famous writer and thinker. You're a professor at the New York University um, Business School, the Stern Business School. Um, and your, your books over the years have really kind of led the way in the field of moral psychology. So that, that is understanding people's motivations, uh, including in the realm of politics, by their moral intuitions. I thought perhaps if we could start with your famous book, The Righteous Mind, which was uh, 2012, I believe, and yes. pretty much look at how those principles have, have shifted over the years. So I study moral psychology, and, and originally in graduate school, I studied how morality varies across cultures and nations. Uh, but by the 1990s and early 2000s, it was clear that in the United States, left and right were as different as different countries. We, we lived in different moral worlds. We had different history textbooks, different economics textbooks, uh, different U.S. Constitution, um, and rising cross-party hate. Uh, and so I began to study that. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, I'm, I've always voted Democratic. At the time, I was much more identified as a liberal Democrat, and I wanted to help the Democrats stop losing because they kept losing the elections that they should have won. Um, so that's why I began writing about the moral psychology that leads people to be either on the left or the right, and that turned into the righteous mind. But by the time I finished the book, I wasn't such a partisan anymore, and I and I really wanted to help people understand each other across the divide. And so I tried to write a much more even-handed, fair, open-minded. I, I actually uh, revisited it just before um, uh, coming on with you today. Um, and I just, I, I, we actually got a little slide um, that we could put up. And I wonder if you could just 
give us a quick explanation of it, just so our, our viewers have the kind of principles in their head, um, which were the five um, intuitions or five moral foundations and how you thought liberals and conservatives prioritized them differently. Uh, sure, this is very helpful. Um, so uh, as I was doing my research on mor how morality varies across cultures, I noticed that you find a lot of the same elements around the world, but they get woven into different moral matrices or networks. Or, uh, uh, and the, so these five that you're looking at now, these I think are the best candidates for being the taste buds of the moral sense. All of our tongues have receptors for sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami. And similarly, all of our brains are, have evolved and developed to be sensitive to these issues uh, in the social world. Uh, and so what we find empirically, my colleagues and I in our research at yourmorals.org, um, is that everybody values harm and fairness. Everybody thinks about those issues, uh, but the left tends to base their entire morality on those two. And fairness on the left tends to mean equality, uh, especially equality of outcome. They're very sensitive to differences of outcome and they see those as signs of unfairness or injustice. People on the right love their children and their dogs also. They also have the care receptors. But right-wing morality tends not to be based on it. It tends to be more about tough love or or uh, in terms of fairness, it's proportionality. It's In America, they used to say, if you do the, do the crime, you do the time. It's more punitive. It's really the, the concept of karma as developed in South Asia um, is, is a very deep insight that you know, the universe will sort of pay you back for your good deeds and your bad deeds. So everybody has harm and fairness, but left and right use them differently. When we look at the final three, so uh, in-group loyalty, authority, respect, and purity, sanctity, we look at those. Now, while people on the left have those, and that you can certainly find evidence of it, uh, but right-wing or especially social conservative morality is built much more on that. And conservatives tend to see more threats outside. They're more focused on who we are and guarding who we are and guarding our, our homeland. Um, they tend to have more respect for authority and uh, tend to side with the police and with uh, you know, teachers or principals in school. And they, they, um, uh, uh, going all the way back to Edmund Burke, um, uh, are cautious or wary about change, radical change. Uh, and then finally, purity sanctity is the most interesting one to me because it seems the most bizarre, especially to cosmopolitan progressive type. Uh, but if you read ancient religious texts, it's all over rules of purity and pollution, and uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, uh, women are supposed to be uh, you know, sequ uh, sequestered during their menstrual periods, or there's menstrual uh, uh, pollution, and uh, you find this in a lot of cultures. And you find this in modern life also, um, uh, the idea that the flag is sacred, or the queen, or, or the country, or the country's founders, or history. Uh, the right tends to use this more in its morality. So in, su in summary, the, the first two are held more dear by liberals or people on the left, and the, the final three are relatively prioritized by people on the right. My challenge to you, Professor, today um, is whether that still holds true. Uh, 2012 or 2010 or when you were doing the research seems like a whole eternity ago now. Um, and I wonder yes. what you have observed of, in particular, the American liberal um, and how yes. they have changed over time. Do you still feel that those differences in values hold true? Well, let's, there's, so 
Okay, so the worst number of political parties to have in a country is one. Okay, that's terrible. But the second worst number is two, and that's what we have in the United States. We have only two parties, and that guarantees the sort of a or it makes it facilitates this polarization, this hatred of the other side. It really helps us ramp up us versus them. Now, there are a lot more political positions and there are a lot more psychological types than two. So each side, left and right, actually has various subgroups. And what's been most interesting in, in the last few years um, is the, the debate on the left is between the sort of the center left, uh, you know, more Obama, Bill Clinton versus the, the, the far left or the, uh, the, well, the woke left would be what the center left would call them. So there's a real split on the uh, on the left, and from my point of view, the center left is is liberal in the sort of the universal sense of the word, not the, not the American left leaning side, but you know John John Stuart Mill type liberal. Whereas the the far left, many of us see elements there that we call illiberal. So there's a split on the left. Um, but even still, um, ideas of you know a focus on victims and uh, uh, and care and and the poor is common to is common to both. Um, on the right, things have been really dramatic um, over the last five years or so, in which uh, the the old Reagan coalition, which was social conservatives, so true social conservatives like George H. W. Bush who are cautious and prudent and are actually great supporters of, of, of democracy, if that's what the system was, they want to preserve it. So there's the Burkean conservatives. Um, there are the business conservatives who are not really conservative. They tend to be laissez-faire, free market types. Uh, and the third group is uh, authoritarians. They're about 20 or 30% of every populace is people who are predisposed to authoritarianism, which means that they're not necessarily racist, but if they feel that the moral order is being threatened, if they feel that we're coming apart, they get this mindset which is, which wants sameness, and then they get racist, sexist, homophobic, guard the borders, kick people out. So uh, Reagan united those three as voting Republicans back in 1980, uh, but the authoritarians are much less educated, they're less intelligent on average, uh, and they've never been in the driver's seat. What's happened with Trump is that the authoritarian uh, element is much more influential and has been driving um, some of the policy. So we are seeing a lot of churn and differentiation in the in the coalitions on both sides. But I think the the five foundations still really help us understand um, large subgroups on each side. What what do you think? Well, I think I'd like to just go through the the, the last three and and see what recent events have have shown us about them. I mean. If we take in-group loyalty, for example, it seems to me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, that um, liberals, particularly in America, have been so terrified by the Trump years um, that there is a much higher degree of, uh, of demand for loyalty and a, a more, I guess, tribal in-group mentality uh, in that side of politics than there was certainly 10 years ago. Um, and it, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure that I see that. Um, there's a, so in Congress, uh, a position is called the whip. The whip is the person who's supposed to create party unity and get people together for the vote. And it's always harder to be the Democratic whip than the Republican whip, uh, because Republicans will generally come together to, when needed to to fight the other side, whereas Democrats. It's said that it's like herding cats. It's much harder to get them. And they don't speak in terms of loyalty. 
so of course, there's a mutual hatred of Trump and of, of the right. And that, yes, that does pull them together, but they don't speak of it in terms of loyalty and betrayal, whereas uh, on, the, on the right, they really do. And you know, t- today or tomorrow, rather, we're going to see the spectacle of a large number of Republicans um, uh, voting uh, to uh, oppose this, <clears throat> the certification of, of Joe Biden's victory. And um, a lot of them you know, know better. A lot of them are well-educated and know that this is ridiculous, but they are so afraid of, uh, you know, of they'll be accused of treason, of being disloyal to Trump. So I, I do think that uh, it, it has always been the case and is still the case that loyalty is just a much bigger deal on the right than the left. But do you, do you see that in Britain or do you think I'm, I'm wrong about America? I think, um, I guess maybe it's not so much loyalty as it becomes a status question. And maybe that's the, the way that the kind of uh, higher status elite liberals will, would make those equivalent sort of distinctions. Would that be fair? So that, you know, that, well, they may not be making great demands of in-out group declarations of loyalty, they're very skilled at making certain opinions and certain ways of seeing the world low status and kind of using. Oh, yes. And so I guess oh. it becomes a status divide rather than a in-group divide. Yes. And that, and there, I think that probably is more true on both extremes. And so that is part of what wokeness seems to be, is the elevation of certain positions um, to a position of such high status that you get a lot of virtue signaling. You get a lot of people professing publicly to support something, but then privately they'll tell somebody, oh, I'm, you know, I, I, I have to do this, but I'm sorry. So uh, yes, you always get, whenever you get a group of humans, you're going to get people jockeying for prestige and you're going to get certain positions uh, um, raised to a level of, of prestige. Let's have a look at uh, number four on your, on your list, which is authority and respect. Um, and I actually, I tuned into, I think it was a TED talk you did a, a number of years ago. Um, and there was one slide that you put up that we've actually got a copy of that I wanted to share with you now. Uh, so uh, it, when you look at liberals and conservatives, again, liberals in the American sense, you look at the left and the right versus the right um, across many generations, you generally find that, quote, liberals speak for the weak and oppressed. They want change and justice, even if there's a risk of chaos. Whereas conservatives, and here there's a, a, a portrait of Edmund Burke, conservatives speak for institutions and traditions. They want order, even at a cost to those at the bottom. So both sides have something they hold sacred, and they're willing to trample on the sacred value of the other side in order to get it. So the fellow in the upper left has a T-shirt that says, stop bitching, start a revolution. The idea of revolution is perennially appealing. Uh, On the left, the old order is corrupt. Let's knock it all down and create a rational order. Uh, And on the right... um, the Burkean conservatives, the this or, or status quo conservatives, are those who look at the long record uh, of revolution and say, "My God, it almost always turns out badly." Uh, you know, let's be careful. Let's let's not burn everything down before we know how things work. And of course, Edmund Burke was uh, really activated by the chaos of the French Revolution. In the Trump era, have those roles not been reversed? You now have conservatives who essentially are in favor of a revolution, challenging the established world order as it's been for 30 more years, even if it creates chaos. And you have liberals now wishing to protect that order. And, and they are the ones who are trying to 
reinstitute those uh, institutions and practices that have been threatened by the populist wave? Has, has it swapped? Yeah. No, um, I, I see why you might say that if you just look at Democrats and Republicans. Uh, but as I said, there's there's heterogeneity on each side. And so so on the right, you do have you still have some conservatives, but they've largely been silenced or trampled on. Um, and in fact, the the Burkean conservatives, many of the, certainly the intellectual Burkeans, are almost all anti-Trump, uh, because Trump is not at all a conservative. It's, uh, there's no way to connect Donald Trump with Edmund Burke. And so, uh, yes, many Republicans are trying to, you know, or, or seem to have lost all respect for the constitutional order and for precedent. Uh, but the conservatives who dare speak out are saying this is an outrage to conservatism. So I think it's more the authoritarians who are the ones who are saying, you know, they're so so conservatism or right wing movements usually come out in response to the left and perceived excesses of the left. So that's why you've got this big art. You've got actual Nazis on the right and you've got the woke people on the far left. And so each side points to the other as the danger, the small portion of the other side. So, no, I would not say that conservatives now favor tearing things down. I would say that authoritarians do. And the conservatives have lost control of the Republican Party. Uh, it's it's now become an insane party. It, it certainly has, uh, I think, no right to call itself conservative. And on the left, um, they certainly don't see themselves as standing up for the existing order. They think the existing order is incurably racist and sexist and mm. homophobic. So, that's so the, they also want to tear things down. I guess the part of the left I may be referring to is more your part of the left or the, the sort of centrist, um, the people who would consider themselves kind of, um, you know, liberals of a, of a more old school variety, center left, however you want yeah. to describe them. You know, that's, that that, that's the order. You know, that's the order that really has since the Oh, Blair-Clinton era dominated the world. We've had this sort of fusionist center-leftism that has pretty much been in charge in both of our two countries for a long time. And I guess that's what I'm getting at, that they're trying to kind of reinstate or defend that world order. I see what you're saying. And I think that's, that's true. Um, the center-left, the sort of the you know Clintonite or or Blairite, I guess I don't I guess Blair is maybe not held in such high esteem in your country anymore. But uh, those that sort of center-left responsible center-left party, uh, yes, they do want. You could say they want to preserve the the old order, but it's not out of a general sense that what exists should be preserved. I would say it's out of a commitment to liberalism, and you know, and again, liberalism in more the classical liberal sense. You know, we want to create a country in which people can live the lives that they that they choose, in which you know, gay people can get married. And so, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, it's an attachment to the old. I think it's an attachment to liberalism. Number five on your list, I'm going to throw at you now, uh, Jonathan. So, the purity sanctity um, virtue, which again, you you your evidence shows is more highly prized among right leaning people. Surely that, I suppose you would say that among the woke left, at least then, has become in recent years a very highly prized virtue. I mean, the, the purity of your public statements, you know, it must ne you must never say anything that deviates from a kind of moral orthodoxy. The purity of historical figures and whether they can be venerated if they have, have moral stains on their character. The purists are, are now more commonly found on the left than the right, perhaps. Yes, I think that's true, um, especially if we compare the woke left 
to the far right, because the far right, again, is not conservative and the far left is not liberal. Um, I have a list, uh, I, I collect a, a list of articles that have made the argument that the woke left is a religion, or rather, it, it uses religious psychology. It's, and I think this makes a lot of sense. So in The Righteous Mind, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And usually we talk entirely about politics, not religion. But my point in the book was that we evolved to be religious. We evolved to make things sacred and join with others in worshiping the sacred object. It could be a tree or a rock or a person or a book. And we, we often, we like to circle around them. Literally circling is a, is a, is a common form of ritual practice um, uh, or bowing down, showing devotion to something. So this is in all of our minds. Uh, and it used to be that large-scale religions, or, or long ago it was small-scale religion, then we had a couple thousand years where there were large-scale religions that kind of filled it, that used all of those slots in our, in our mental circuits uh, and that directed our, our religious thinking. But in the last 50 years, large-scale religions have lost their grip, especially on the left in Europe and America. Um, you know, 50 years ago, Republicans and Democrats went to church about the same amount. Uh, but now it, it's a pretty good predictor. If someone goes to church regularly, they're a Republican. And if they never go, they're a Democrat. So as religion has lost its grip on, especially on people on the left, those circuits aren't going to go away. So politics has come to be much more religious. And I would say uh, uh, clearly on the woke left, um, to some extent on the Trumpian right. I mean, they don't exactly treat him as a god. I don't th so it's not clear as clear to me that it's religion on the right. It's something. Um, but it's very clearly religion on the on the woke left. And we had the the rituals of of, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters, white protesters washing the feet of African-Americans and really taking their, you know, the vestigial Christianity and applying it to a to a political movement. So from your actual personal observations, then not instead of looking at empirical data sets um, in the kind of you know, you live in New York, you're a professor at an uh, elite institution, you, your colleagues, your friends. Have you noticed a shift in as the, the, the animal we call the elite liberal in the last 10 years? I mean, do you feel that they are more defensive, more unnerved and therefore different in the way they interact politically? I would say that there are big generational differences where those who remember the 20th century, so I'm, I was born in 1963, I was shaped by the 20th century. So, uh, you know, uh, Gen X and especially baby. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The boomers. Um, might still see left and right to some extent as about you know, labor and capital. That was, the, that was the really older generation, my grandparents' generation. Um, but they have, a, they, they have some patriotism. Uh, they think America is a good country and they remember the Cold War. Um, so older, older people on the left tend to have more patriotism, more value on free speech. Uh, they're 20th century liberals. Uh, whereas the millennials and Gen Z, uh, which are people born after 1996 or so, um, they're much more focused on uh, race, gender, uh, LGBTQ uh, issues, because those were the issues that were really formative. They've, they tend not to be very patriotic because you know, all they've really known is America fighting, you know, well, uh, arguably unjust wars, and they uh, um, have not seen American democracy work well, and they have not lived in an era when America was the, was admired widely around the world. So I'd say there are huge generational differences on the left. Um, I don't know as much about the generational differences on the right, but I haven't noticed my, you know, people my age, I haven't noticed them changing. Do you worry for a future where those people you describe, that, that new generation, grow up to, to run the world, essentially? I mean, do you think it's a worrying development? Oh, it's a very worrying development. Um, there is evidence that how the world looks to you between the ages of about 14 and 22, uh, it kind of gets set in. There, you know, before 14, you're not really aware of politics. And in your late teens and early 20s, you, you suddenly start going to you know, uh, anti-racist protests. When I was young, it was anti-nuclear protests and anti-apartheid protests. And that, there's evidence that that um, kind of sets and stays with you for life. So Americans born between so white people in America on average vote Republican, um, uh, as we saw that certainly in the Trump election and, and before. The only exception is white Americans born between 1950 and 1954. They have voted Democrat for life, and I think it's because 1968 happened right in the sweet spot of their formative years. They were radicalized and they stayed radicalized, or you know, shifted left for their whole lives. Um, the greatest generation. That'll be there. the Clinton sort of Blair generation you're describing then that were, I guess they were formed exactly. by the 68 mood. 
That's right. That's right. Mm. It's the it's the it's the baby boom, the earlier part of the baby boom, not the first years, but the the, the second five years of the baby boom or so. Um, now, the the greatest generation, the, those who remember World War Two, they were all shaped by this, you know, this need to come together. And they did a great job of compromise, working together, putting aside their differences when you know, it used to be said that, you know, politics ends at the at the water's edge. You know, we're, when we're dealing with the rest of the world, we're united. Um, whereas Clinton's generation, the baby boom, they were their performative years were spent fighting each other. And so they were one uh, in the 90s as the greatest generation aged out and the baby boom like Clinton and Blair took over, at least in America, politics got much more bitter and divisive. It was uh, Newt Gingrich in the House of Representatives versus Bill Clinton. So when we think now about what's going to happen when uh, the millennials and especially Gen Z take over, um, the millennials I'm I'm not not particularly worried about. Um, uh, I don't see worrying signs uh, in them, although they they're less patriotic and they have less faith in democracy. Understandably, it's kind of worrying. Most, but <laughs> yeah, yes, that is true. But um, but I'm especially worried about Gen Z. Uh, you know, I wrote a book with Greg Lukianoff called "The Coddling of the American Mind," uh, and it's about what on earth is going on with. You know, with uh, people born after 1995, 96, have, they have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide. And this is equally true, in, well, almost as much true in Britain as it is in America. Uh, we've got a lot of data on, on this. It's, it's true in all the English-speaking countries, but it's not necessarily true in all the European countries. Um, so uh, I think uh, what's going on is we had such massive overprotection. We, we freaked out in America in the 1990s about child abduction. Uh, and... We used to let kids run around outside. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, there was a crime wave. There was a huge crime wave, but kids could go play outside. And in the 1990s, just as the crime wave was ending, we suddenly freaked out about child abduction, and we we kept our kids under close watch. Uh, we don't give them free play. We we give them a lot more, uh, you know, homework and after school activities, and they have much higher levels of anxiety. And so, you know, in when they come to university, they uh, are much more sensitive. They are much more. They claim to be harmed by words and books and speakers and ideas. They ask for protection from them, uh, and they. Uh, so if if they you know and on college campuses it tends to be mostly people on the left. Um, if they can't stand to even have a conservative come speak on campus, how are they going to work with the other side when they are running the country? Mm. Well, they're they're not probably, or they're they're not. There's no signs of that. Um, the Coddling of the American Mind, the book you just uh, referenced, I wonder if we now look at the last year, um, you know, tw 2020, that extraordinary year we've just had, whether if we look at, for example, the pandemic, um, that has exacerbated some of those effects in some way. I mean, you could almost call it the coddling of the American body as well. I mean, there's a sense in which it, risk has become totally unacceptable and um you know that we will we will take any measures to reduce risk to as close to zero as possible and i i just wondered what your reflections were on that development yeah i think we don't know yet because um you know life has gotten easier and easier or i would rather i should say right life has gotten less risky across the board however there's economic precarity that has gone up for a lot of people so i don't want to say life is getting easier um but uh, but Gen Z has been protected from hardship much more than previous generations. And what they've just gone through, I mean, my kids are, are 11 and 14, and it's been a very difficult year for them. And, and 
you know, so they have gone through some real hardship. And so that might toughen them, that might strengthen them. But I think we just don't know yet. The survey data I've seen so far shows that um, elderly people who are the most at risk of dying are least afraid of the virus. And young people who are at least risk are most afraid yeah, of it. I've seen um, that too. So I, you know, I think that I don't know if that would have been true 50 years ago. Uh, so I don't know if it's an age effect or a cohort effect. But I suspect it's again because we, if when you protect people from risk, that they lower their threshold for what's threatening. And so as you say, it's like now like they're much more sensitized about contamination and and other people are dangerous. Mm. So and this the uh, virus I, will only have exacerbated that then i mean is there a, is there a worry about that yes that's a that's a definite possibility that their rates of fearfulness and threat sensitivity will stay elevated and will stay high um but i'm what i'm saying is i just don't know yet let's in two or three years we'll see whether this experience toughened them or whether it hypersensitized them i just don't know which way it's going to go um, we've, we've needed some Jonathan Haidt-style thinking in the last 12 months because there's been a huge amount of mutual distrust and kind of demonization of people who thought differently uh, on pandemic, for example. Um, you know, and, and certainly a lot of people think the other side, people, for example, who think there are too many centralized restrictions and we should have taken a different path, are basically evil. Uh, you know, they are people who don't care about life and want their, you know, they have some sort of death wish. And I, my feeling is that there, there hasn't been much of a successful expression of any other virtues, um, except life and death during the last 12 months. And it's made the conversation quite shrill and, and aggressive. Okay, so I think we have the exact same issue over lockdowns, where the right, because the you know, small business people and business people tend to vote for the right, and the lockdowns are just devastating to them. Whereas the left, at least in America, the left is a coalition, it's sort of upstairs, downstairs coalition. So it's, you know, professors and lawyers and, and advertising people and, you know, uh, people with advanced degrees who had no problem switching to Zoom. I mean, in many ways, our lives got better because we didn't have to commute. So you got the upstairs and then the downstairs is especially uh, uh, non-white uh, working class. The white working class is on the right, but the non-white working class is, is on the left. So... Um, so for, I guess, many materialist reasons, uh, the, the, you know, all the people writing on the left, uh, are in favor of lockdowns and mask wearing and, uh, the right, um, uh, is on the other side, but yes, it's, it's been, it's been so sad to see. I would just say that we had, we did see some virtues in the first few weeks, uh, in America, and I imagine it was the same everywhere. Uh, there were many more stories of generosity, heroism. In the first few weeks, as didn't we didn't last oh, long, did it? We, we had to. No, that's right. Yeah, that was. The, we that we was had the that thing. for about four long. weeks. Yeah, um, I, I guess, I was a candidate for a, a missing virtue in this conversation is beauty, or a sort of aesthetic sense of what a flourishing life should look like. And I feel like maybe that's been missing in this pandemic conversation as well, that people, maybe some people on the right, yes, they might have been materialist reasons, as you say, that they were worse affected. But there was also a sort of sense of, you know, what a, what a flourishing society should look like. And everybody stuck in their homes on Zoom for the kind of medium term did not look like that. I, do, you, do you think there's any, any strength in that idea? Well, it certainly is true that when you are when you are feeling threatened or when you're angry, 
it's very hard to be curious. It's very hard to enjoy beauty. It's very hard to think about self-actualization and human potential. Um, fear and anger really sort of orient our minds in a, in a, in a, in a way that suits us for either battle or for hiding and running away. Um, so, uh, so I think in general, what you're saying is true. Uh, but you know, what I see on social media, uh, uh, you know, so in the, in the early weeks and couple, first couple of months, we were all just trying to figure what, what the hell is, is going on? How bad will it be? How deadly is it? You know, so the first couple, uh, first couple of months, it, it was a lot of struggling together to figure out what's going on. But as people settled into it, you know, I'm seeing so many beautiful photographs people are taking, you know, we all have so much time, uh, that, uh, and we, uh, you know, we need to spend more time outside, at least in, in America, it was, you know, we have a lot of space and, and, uh, um, you know, people spend a lot of time outside. And so I think there, you know, the, at least among the educated sorts of people that I interact with, I think there actually has been some increasing appreciation of natural beauty, increasing appreciation of moral beauty, um, so over time, I, you know, I think it's been a really, it's, it's been an incredibly interesting year to be a social scientist. That's, that's what I can say for sure. Do you think the involvement of science in that sense is another divider perhaps during this period that, you know, all of these charts we see every day and the curves and the extrapolations and the models and how many exact people have been suffering or gone into hospital. It's all very scientific, and for if you're someone who has prides themselves on being a rationalist, have been educated in a certain way, you know that is how you think the world should be run. And maybe there are other groups of people who are innately more suspicious of of making decisions based on charts and data models, and would prefer a more sort of intuitive or different values to behind big decisions yeah. like that. Well, what you're describing there is the the ancient distinction between rationalists and romantics, or I think it was Nietzsche called, called them, uh, uh, Apollonians and Dionysians. Mm, right, exactly. Um, and that would not be a left-right difference. So yes, that in a, in a normal sane society, you would still have that difference. And you might say that people are innately predisposed to one side or the other. Unfortunately, we don't live in that world. We live in a world uh, in which science has become politicized. Um, there's Data. What's it? Goshat. There's a sociologist. His name. His last name is Goshat. G A U C H A T. If you Google it, you'll find it. Uh, but he did some research in the 90s, I think it was, or early 2000s. Uh, no, 2010, something like that, showing that until, at least in the United States, until about 1990, the right and the left had equal trust or faith in science and scientists, and then it diverges. Um, the right certainly likes rocket science. They like science in general. There's not a difference there. But what began happening, Gosha says, uh, is that they began to distrust scientists because as America got more and more polarized in the 90s and especially in the 21st century, scientists would come out with these pronouncements like, you know, you know, the, I'm a psychologist, the American Psychological Association would come out with dozens, it would take a side on political issues. Um, it even took a stance on the nuclear freeze in the 19, 1980s. Uh, so, so as scientists who generally are on the left, as scientists got more politically active and, and turned into the culture war, and as universities moved from sort of leaning left to being very far on the left, the right, distrusted all of that. And 
So then when you had early in the pandemic, when you had scientists saying, don't wear masks, don't wear masks, uh, they're not going to help you, but we need them for the uh, medical personnel because they'll really help them, but not you. Like, wait, what? You know, th- th- and then especially when they, when so many epidemiologists came out, um, uh, you know, in favor of lockdowns, don't go out, don't socialize, don't be with people. Oh, unless you're protesting for Black Lives Matter, then it's okay. So things like that just confirm the pre-existing suspicion of the right that scientists are partisans. Now, you know, most are not, but some are. Uh, so, um, you know, so yes, the, 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 there's a distrust, not of science in general, but of scientists and the scientific community on the right. And I'm seeing that in what I read from Europe as well. Do you, you see that in Britain too? Definitely. Uh, and I think what you say about the university campuses, I mean, hundred percent, that's, that once again is at the kind of frontier of this whole culture war, isn't it? Uh, I don't know what your experience has been at NYU. Um, but the you know the the protests, the sense of kind of cleansing the space of dissident voices, has that been a problem in your university, or have you observed any of that? Well, NYU is a you know it's we're in the heart of Greenwich Village in New York City. Uh, where it's a very strong university in in uh, the humanities and social sciences, uh, so it is one of the more left leaning universities. Uh, I'm very lucky that I'm in the business school. Uh, where you know the great majority are Democrats, but it's just much a much more pragmatic sensi- sensibility. You know, business people are just much more practical and pragmatic, and and so I, I've had no problem. I feel very well supported uh, at, at at Stern. Uh, but if I was teaching in the psychology department or if I was in the anthropology department, then I think there would be more. I would feel more that I have to be very careful what I say, and I still have to be be careful. We. Um, but uh, but no, I, it hasn't really impinged on my on my life very directly. So, adding all these things up that we have gone over in the last few minutes, we're in quite a difficult situation. I mean, if the situation is even worse than it was ten years ago when you were doing this yes, much worse. research, and we've got groups in society who are almost irreconcilable. I mean, they fundamentally don't buy into any of the alternative precepts. And now we have a change of government likely um, in later this month. What hope is there? I take a lot of hope in the report from More in Common, so this wonderful uh, British-based organization that does incredible polling research uh, in Europe, in Britain, in America. And they found, they, they, by giving surveys with lots of political questions, and they used, they used a short version of the Moral Foundations question to look at the, those Moral Foundations. Um, by doing a cluster analysis of of people, they found that there are seven subtypes, and uh, four of them combine into what they call the exhausted majority. So the 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 far left was only eight percent. It was the progressive activists. It was only eight percent. Those are the woke people. Uh, those are the people who think that political correctness is not a problem. On the far right. Uh, it was the there was the I forget what the labels were, but the farthest right group was more authoritarian, and then the second one in was more Berkey and conservatives. Um, so those are those are the three extreme groups, and then the four groups in the middle. It was like liberals and um, uh, non you know, people who are moderates, and then people who are just not politically informed. But that's that was I think more than seventy percent of the populace is the exhausted majority that wants to have things work, is willing to compromise. Um, most Americans are pretty reasonable. 
Most Americans um, are not extremists. Uh, a lot of what's going wrong here, there are a lot of uh, trends that go back to the even to the 60s. But one of the biggest ones is that social media changed dramatically between 2009 and 2011. And once we created this outrage machine, uh, suddenly the fact that 70% is in the middle or the exhausted majority, their voice or their visibility shrinks and shrinks. And the, you know, the 8% at either extreme grows and grows. So um, I think we will have to find some way to change the, the social incentives of so, that social media uh, creates because it, it warps our politics while destroying the ability to find truth. Um, so that, so social media reform, uh, in the United States, we have some ridiculous, bizarre features of our electoral system. You know, you may have heard of our electoral college, but the biggest problem is the primaries that uh, because each congressional district tends to be a safe district, it's going to go either Republican or Democrat for sure. Uh, so people are really afraid of losing in the primary. And the fact that we have closed party primaries in most states means that's all that matters. That's where the extremists show up to vote. Nobody else does. So. Uh, if we have various uh, major electoral reforms, if we have some way of improving social media, uh, and then I guess if we have some way of, you know, the generation after Gen Z or maybe still Gen Z, uh, maybe they'll just be exhausted by the fighting. I guess in Europe, you had the 30 years war that went on, I don't know how long. And after so much death, the next generation was just kind of exhausted. Maybe that'll happen. Well, to be honest, even here in the UK, the Brexit wars of the last three or four years feel like a 30 years war. <laughs> yes. uh, and it came to a conclusion January the 1st with a bit of a non-event, actually, you know, remarkable how people were sort of spent on that right. argument. We were on yeah. to arguing about lockdowns and masks instead. But uh, Maybe there is hope then that at least people will sort of exhaust themselves into some sort of uh, temporary ceasefire. Yes, I mean there, you know, history does have cycles. Uh, there's a, a mathematician historian Peter Turchin who predicted in 2010 that based on various cycles, 2020 was going to be an explosive year. Uh, and you know, when you take a historical view, you see that there are these there are these long periods where not much changes, and then there are short periods where a lot changes. And then you know, so so the the chaos of this year is not going to last forever. It probably won't last 10 years, but it might last four or five. So you're not predicting a a, a boring 2021 then. No, I think it's going to be uh, quite interesting, um, more hopeful. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to predict in 2021, but I, I'm sure we're not done with the, the big changes. We're all still trying to figure it out. Well, it will be fascinating to see what happens. Professor Jonathan Haidt, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. My pleasure, Freddie. That was Professor Jonathan Haidt joining us from uh, New York, where uh, he is a teacher at New York University Stern Business School. Uh, covering quite a lot of ground there, lot, lots for us to think about. Uh, thanks to him for his time and thanks for tuning in. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.